Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Tom Schult, and I co-host the channel with Kevin Lindsay. While various systems theories have received rigorous treatments across the literature of the field, reliable and robust advice for systems practice can be somewhat harder to come by. Ray Eisen has done much to remedy this state of affairs through his deeply theoretically grounded yet eminently practical book, Systems Practice. How to Act in Situations of Uncertainty and Complexity in a Climate Change World, which was reprinted by Springer in 2017. After first drawing a distinction between metaphors and the much less well-known notion of isophores, Eisen builds a conception of the systems practitioner's work around his central isophore of the juggler. For Eisen, the systems practitioner must keep four essential balls in the air. These are one, the B-ball, which concerns the attributes of being a practitioner with a particular tradition of understanding. Two, the E-ball, which concerns the characteristics ascribed to the, quote, real-world situation that the juggler is engaging with. Three, the C-ball, which concerns the act of contextualizing a particular approach to a new situation. And four, the M-ball, which is about how the practitioner is managing their overall performance in a situation. Interspersed with extensive excerpts from a wide array of systems practitioners, such as Danella Meadows, Russ Acoff, and beyond, Eisen blends cybernetics and systems in a rare and deft manner, and his thoughtful book, underwritten by years of fieldwork, makes a significant contribution to the systems literature by asking, in Eisen's own words, what do we do when we do what we do? The answers are as illuminating as the lively conversation we had about this book. Ray Eisen, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I've been trying to get you on for a long time, not through any fault of yours, but through uh, just the backlog of books trying to get through in our various hectic schedules. But it's so great to have you here for the first of what will be two interviews over the next little while, because today we're going to talk about your 2017 um, uh, new new edition of uh, Systems Practice. And then, of course, we'll be talking about a new book you've co-authored, co-authored with Ed Straw coming up soon. But all that to say, welcome. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, Tom. Great to be here. So if you could start us off in our traditional way and just tell us a little bit about yourself for the listeners, uh, maybe your current affiliations, and also just a little uh, bit of your intellectual trajectory and, um, and your practice uh, trajectory as well as I know those uh, theory and practice are, of course, uh, closely bound up together in your work in, in terms of praxis, um, and how you came to an engagement with systems and cybernetics as well. Okay, thanks. That's a generous invitation. Uh, well, I'm currently professor of systems at the Open University in the UK, uh, where I joined as professor uh, 26 years ago, actually, even though I, at the moment I'm in lockdown in Melbourne, Australia. But I work every day uh, in the UK with um, our master's program in systems thinking and practice, which I've been a key uh, person in uh, 
with along with my colleagues in uh, getting it up and running. Uh, I came to um, the formal role of Professor of Systems through a rather odd set of circumstances. I was an academic at the University of Sydney in a Faculty of Agriculture. I came back from a uh, conference in New Zealand and had on my desk a letter from someone at the Open University saying there's a chair in systems being advertised. Uh, would you care to apply for it? Um, and I looked at the closing date and the date had closed. It seemed uh, a um, very sad thing that I might have missed out. So I made inquiries and uh, found out that they'd consider a late application. I applied. They flew me across for interviews and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, how did I come to be asked to be uh, to apply for that post? Well, um, if one goes back perhaps even further in my history, I grew up in a rural community and had a long family history and tradition in farming and agriculture and studied agricultural science at university, at the University of Sydney, in fact, um, where I later became an academic. Uh, and agriculture, if you uh, really appreciate it and, and not get uh, do, too uh, deluded or sidetracked by the the science part of agriculture in the term agricultural science is essentially a uh, classic human activity system in which uh, humans are in constant uh, social uh, and biophysical dynamics with the, uh, with the earth and have to um, manage their existence through what Maturana calls uh, structural coupling and unfolding structural coupling uh, in which the quality of that coupling it depends on whether you can continue to make a living or exist or whether you degrade your farm or run it down and things of that nature. So uh, farming is, a, a to me, a classic sort of cybernetic activity and perhaps not uh, thought about enough because we've tended to scientise agriculture a bit and lose the human coupling with the land or the landscape. Uh, I've uh, throughout my career I've had a a, a concern with um, the interplay between the social and the biophysical, and uh, a classic uh, story of that may be how poverty stricken I found agricultural economics at university because uh, it failed to understand in its uh, discourse and framing uh, people as people. It, it tended to tr treat people as very abstract, rationalist beings who didn't relate in any way much to the way I experience people. So uh, beginning then, I've had a, a long and strong critique of contemporary mainstream economics, but that's perhaps an aside. So uh, systems uh, was something I began to pick up at university. Uh, I became more interested in it when I did the fieldwork for my PhD in Bali and in Indonesia. Uh, if anyone understands Balinese society, it's a it's a inter, interweaved spirituality, lived existence, innovation, water management, uh, social relations, art, in a um, unfolding uh, manner of living that uh, enables you to see one's own culture through a different lens, and it uh, convinced me of the 
power of uh, thinking systemically about matters and issues, and particularly when I became face-to-face with the um, failure of a lot of so-called development attempts by outside Western agencies who thought they knew best and how to develop others. So if you, that's probably enough for the moment, uh, unless there are specific questions you'd like to ask me, Tom. Yeah, so um, so Macharana's name came up uh, fairly fairly early in this conversation, I think. And um, of of all the systems practitioners I've read who who identify themselves uh, mostly um, with the word systems, cybernetics is deeply woven into what you do in a way that uh, I would say the most profound of any systems practitioner I've read. There are a number who, who will me- mention cybernetics and who understand it quite deeply and others, others who use it. It's, I intend no disrespect to others, but um, particularly the, uh, the embrace of the second order and the ways that you lean into Macharana are, are, I would say more pronounced in your work than I see in some other writers in the systems field. So can you say a little bit about, about particularly second order cybernetics and how you came upon it and how it's come to play uh, such a, I think, distinctive role in, in your work particularly? Uh, thanks, yes. Um, well, it's an interesting um, intersection of, um, of, um, of experiences, really. Uh, the first job I had after I left uh, the University of Queensland where I did my PhD uh, was at a, a small agricultural college called Hawkesbury Agricultural College, in which, um, led and inspired by a dear friend, Richard Borden, uh, a group of academics uh, collaborated with a, a new cohort of students in inventing a whole new student-centred curriculum, which uh, turned much of traditional education on its head and had as its core um, aspirations to to develop a systems agriculturalist, someone who could think and act systemically to change situations for the better, someone who uh, could take responsibility for their own learning by understanding what learning was and how to enact it and manage it, and uh, thirdly, how to uh, see all uh, action as an opportunity for improving uh, communication. In that milieu, uh, systems understandings were uh, highly prevalent and I met many um, leading systems academics, but not many uh, early cyberneticians. Peter Checkland, Gordon Conway and others were people I met because I organised a big international conference in the first year or so of my being there. Uh, But at Hawkesbury... um, a person who's become a dear friend and a long-term colleague and collaborator, David Russell, who had a uh, psychology background, uh, began uh, uh, working on Maturana's ideas, introduced me to them. We began to collaborate around uh, what we perceived as a rather poverty-stricken model of how agricultural research and development operated based on simplistic notions about information and information transfer. And uh, he, in fact, um, invited me to accompany him to an event in Melbourne where I uh, met Maturana and participated in a a workshop with Maturana. So that was uh, one um, 
set of experiences which led me into um, valuing uh, the explanations that Umberto offers. Uh, the other one uh, came with my partner's work on her PhD in social work. Um, it was a uh, rather fraught topic. Uh, uh, I think the title of her PhD was The uh, Impact of Disclosure of Sexual Assault on the Victim Mothers of the uh, Children. Uh, and she drew on uh, systemic family therapy which in itself was heavily influenced by second-order cybernetics, including Maturana, and as someone who helped her with the uh, reading of her draft chapters, I became immersed in the uh, um, family therapy literature through that means. I might not have done it otherwise. And so uh, the interplay of these two sets of experiences drew me into the uh, second-order cybernetic conversation, which um, I was able to pick up and follow uh, later through attending and joining the American Society of Cybernetics. Great. Thank you. Um, and as I mentioned, you make uh, such excellent use of, of Maturana in your work, and I'm sure we will return to it as we get into your isophore of the systems practitioner as as a juggler uh, and juggling the various balls that you, that you um, name for us. So the book, Systems Practice, How to Act in a Climate Change World, what made you feel that this was the book you needed to write at that moment? It's, it's, a, it's been a little while, and the, the, the second edition came out 2017, but what really compelled you, um, amongst the many things you've written, to, to commit to that book at the precise moment that you decided to sit down and start writing it? Well, uh, as often, it's about the unfolding of, uh, of opportunity in particular contexts. Uh, in the uh, uh, late, uh, in the early 2000s, say 2006 to about 2009, uh, at the Open University, we were wanting to put together the first uh, postgraduate program that we'd run at the Open University in systems and systems thinking. Uh, we, we had run into problems uh, organisationally with the way in which uh, people in Britain and the people at the Open University got exposed to the idea of systems and we'd rebranded ourselves as, uh, as a group committed to systems thinking in practice uh, because uh, many people outside of uh, the, a small, I guess, group of cognoscenti I often thought that systems had something to do with computing and other things of that nature. So there was a real lacuna in appreciation of what it is that we did and other things. So um, one of the opportunities was the uh, desire to create a new master's program and the Open University's agreement to commit to that. And once the Open University um, makes a decision uh, to go ahead with uh, things of this nature, which can be quite time-consuming. Um, resources of uh, our, our Open University system fell into place. And by resources, I mean uh, once, once a decision is made that a module at the Open University can go ahead, well, then we bring all sorts of resources to bear, and it could be anywhere between a quarter of a million pounds and half a million pounds, depending on how big the module is because a whole team of people collaborate to develop a module. And uh, we uh, 
managed to uh, secure a contract uh, through the Open University with Springer as publishers to produce a set of four books for our new uh, master's program. And systems practice, uh, how to act in a climate change world, was the first, uh, was the one um, I chose to uh, write because it, it, uh, well, it brought together uh, strands of my own scholarship and learning. It brought together uh, my increasing um, desire to uh, write something that was about praxis and um, perhaps most importantly, it was uh, a uh, antidote to the way in which systems was being framed and discussed historically in the UK and beyond, which tended to only see systems in terms of someone's methodology or method and uh, wrote the practitioner out of their consideration. So I saw it as an opportunity to bring a second-order perspective, second-order lens, and to reintroduce the practitioners into um, the learning we were orchestrating. That's fascinating because that, that definitely, uh, as I hear you answer that question, it definitely resonates with my, um, my experience uh, reading the book. So let's lean into the idea of the practitioner. So what grounds uh, certainly the first half over half of the book uh, and and it's featured in the image on the on the cover of someone juggling is this uh, isophore as you call it of the systems practitioner as juggler first can you just take a second to talk to us about the concept of the isophore rather than the metaphor because you're 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 keen to to let us know that this is an isophore can you say a little bit about the difference in in uh, nomenclature of isophore and metaphor and why that um, was important yes well it's an interesting story and uh, uh, interestingly it um reconnects me with uh, Umberto Maturana. Uh, when I first uh, developed the concept of the juggler as a means of explicating what uh, we regarded as systems practice, this idea first came up on my uh, lounge room floor with a colleague, Rosalind Armson, when we were writing a earlier undergraduate model, module. And we at that stage, uh, thought about the juggler as a metaphor. In fact, we called it a metaphor for a long period of time. Uh, and it was only uh, in the mid-2000s uh, when I was invited to give a keynote address at, um, at a conference in uh, Quito in Ecuador uh, where Umberto Maturana was also speaking and we uh, caught up with each other and, uh, as always, had a lovely set of conversations. And he, having listened to my uh, talk, my presentation, said that uh, he thought that um, what I was calling uh, a, a metaphor, the juggler, was best described as an isophore, which was a term he had invented uh, as an alternative to a metaphor. Now, I've also done quite a bit of uh, work on metaphor theory and uh, have had PhD students uh, use metaphor theory for different reasons. And metaphor theory, to me, is very important within the systems and cybernetic traditions. But a metaphor operates by taking you from one place to another place through the use of a set of concepts. And, uh, I mean, like... Uh, 
organizational life as war uh, uh, is a metaphor. Now, an isophore is that it, um, uh, in the way that Umberto uh, coined the term, is that it's uh, it's an exemplar of um, of the same dynamics being enacted in an alternative domain. So one can think of juggling as a set of dynamics uh, uh, which are being conducted and carried out, uh, and systems practice is essentially being the same set of or, or encompassing the same set of relational dynamics and enactment. And so therefore the uh, term isophore was um, more apt and uh in the first edition of my book, I sat on the fence a little bit. I wasn't convinced. But over time, I became absolutely convinced that this was best described as an isophore uh, because of the uh, relational dynamics and the ways of thinking about embodied action. Uh, there's a Canadian uh, twist to this as well in that Kathleen Forsyth, who's, I think, based in B.C., uh, has done a mm-hmm. bit of work and writing mm-hmm. about isophore. There's not many people who've actually taken on and understand the concept. That's right. She has taken it up quite in a quite a robust way. That's right. Wonderful. Well, let's jump into this isophore. So you talk about, uh, you name a set of balls that are being uh, juggled by the systems practitioner, uh, the B, yes, E, C, right. and M balls. I've got them all, haven't I? That's right. Yes, Beckham, right. Um, so engaging. you've got being, um, you've got engaging, yeah. contextualizing, and That's managing, right. yeah? So let's, can we go through them one at a time and just sort of give a, a, a snapshot of each one, um, about which e- each one of them? Well, first of all, do you want to yeah. say anything a little more about juggling itself, about, about the dynamics of juggling? Uh, because obviously the discrete nature of those balls is going to be, um, uh, come up against the, um, the fact that, the job is about juggling. <laughs> it's about all of those things in the air all the time. So is there anything else you want to say about juggling before we get into the well, individual balls? for me, balls? the um, isophore of juggling uh, draws attention, once you think about it, uh, to the centrality of the practitioner, the juggler. I mean, juggling uh, as a performance or an enactment doesn't happen without the centrality of the juggler. And, of course, um, uh as you would know, Tom, as a theatre person and background, uh, embodiment and enactment requires a set of relationships to be in place. So uh, a a juggler needs to be grounded, have connection uh, to, uh, it might be a a floor or or, uh, something from which they can uh, uh, anchor their practice. it requires a particular set of uh, skills uh, to be an effective performance. It, it could be um, a particular lineage of juggling. There are different classes of jugglers. Jugglers juggle different things. Uh, and um, in particular types of performance, a juggler might require an audience. And, of course, uh, to be a juggler who juggles for money, well, then you've got to do something that satisfies an audience. So the act of... Uh, of juggling uh, allows the systemic dynamics and relationships of enactment to be teased out. And uh, then uh, we uh, felt that um, the balls 
that were being juggled needed to um, highlight the central aspects of um, of practice. In fact, any practice really, but uh, specifically in relation to systems practice. So the being ball, the juggling our being, uh, is heavily uh, anchored in the uh, understandings of second-order cybernetics, the uh, natures of knowing, and the realisation that we uh, humans uh, live in language and that we need to take responsibility for the implications of living in language and that um, we act always in the moment based on our traditions of understanding out of which we think and act and that rationality and these other things come as a reflexive afterthought often. And so, um, and it has links back, of course, to Bates and uh, uh, Spencer Brown and other, the nature, how does experience arise? Experience arises in the act of making a distinction. Uh, these uh, ideas and that true learning only comes about following embodiment uh, and uh, languaging. So the, the bee ball is about unpacking all of that and about uh, creating the circumstances for the practitioner to take responsibility for their own praxis. And I might say that we understand, or I understand praxis to be theory-informed practical action. And I guess you could uh, say that the whole book itself is about, uh, is a, is a um, contribution to scholarship in what I'd call systems praxeology, the, the understandings and theories of practical action. So the b-ball. Uh, the other thing, of course, to, to understand about um, uh, the practitioner is the practitioner is always situated. They're always practice is always embodied and always situated. You're never outside the situation of your practice. And so um, one of the great um, one of the great uh, conundrums in the systems field which I think has caused all sorts of havoc and uh, uh, continues to cause havoc, is the failure of uh, practitioners to take responsibility for their own use of concepts and language and particularly their own uh, manners of knowing, so their own epistemological commitments. And this is manifest particularly in the concept system. So... um, Mm -hmm. There are those who see systems as things in the world or ontologies, and there are those who see systems uh, as um, epistemologies, devices to engage with situations. So it raises the whole question of whether one in one's practice should start with the system, the system out there, or whether one starts with the situation, which one engages with systemically through the idea of a system. Mm-hmm. And giving rise to that system through the distinctions that one draws, and those distinctions are grounded in a lineage of distinctions that we've lived Absolutely. in uh, and, and that we've been and- raised in. Yeah, that to me, this is a crucial, crucial part of not just of, of the b-ball, but of your work in particular. And, and as I mentioned right off the top, it's linkages with second-order cybernetics and yeah, you point to something that I think has, you know, been a real schism in a way between um, many people who identify first as cyberneticians, uh, the sense that the systems field 
still um, is still thinking of systems in an ontological way, and that it hasn't fully um, taken on board um, the, this this more constructivist notion. Although there are many who have, I mean, John Mingers and Gerald Midgley and others recognize that. Um, but it still it it, uh, it 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 dies hard in a sense, and and you're bringing that that sense of responsibility uh, for n- naming, knowing, uh, being um, overtly clear about um, those traditions that one brings into the yes. into the engagement. I yes. mean, I'm not arguing for one uh, tradition mm. or other, but I, uh, although I have my preferences, mm. uh, because I believe that. Um, if one acts with epistemological awareness, you can choose either tradition and say, well, in this situation, I will act as if this were a system existing ontologically. Uh, or you can choose to, to say, well, I'm going to take responsibility because I'm bringing forth this system as a distinction in this situation and I'm doing that with others or not with others, uh, as the case may be, uh, and I'm bringing different perspectives to how, to bear. So being aware of one's uh, choices about the about the nature of system uh, is, I think, a really important ethical and uh, practical consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Great. So, uh, having a step, I just go wanted ahead. to yeah. um, pick up on one other aspect of this and. Um, and I'm not sure that even that many people. Uh, draw attention to it, but if, and it's partly the uh, the trap of living in in language. And uh, again, a Maturanan term is that he's he has suggested that um, it's not so much that we live in language and use language, but language uses us, and so that enables one, as I do in the book, to think mm-hmm. about language as a social technology, which um, uses us as much as we use language, and. Um, if, if you live in a language that's rich in nouns uh, and if you're a parent and reflect on how your child came to uh, understand nouns in the language development, uh, you see a, a parent and a child or someone repeating a name, horse, 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 and so uh, suddenly the child develops the, co- the concept horse and from that moment on, the horse is a thing. So in the de- early development of language, we thingify st- our language rather than maintaining the process by which the distinction becomes apparent. And uh, so all nouns mm-hmm. arise in an act of distinction. They don't exist a priori. And if we take us the idea of a system, as well then... A system is something that is brought forth by someone at a, in language and in doing that they're making a distinction uh, which must by its very conceptual nature make a, a distinction between what's in a system and what's outside it. And if you think of, say, uh, someone who draws a circle on a whiteboard and asks the question, uh, of the audience, what have I done? Uh, Most people will say, well, you've created a circle. So people automatically go to the thing rather than the process which creates the distinction. And and what one does in the praxis Mm -hmm. sense by drawing a line, a circle on a board, is 
you create a distinction between an inside and an outside, and thus you create a relational dynamic between an internal and an external. And so a system in its distinction is always a relational dynamic between between something inside and something outside. And one also distinguishes inside particular things that are in relationship that constitute the system. So we we have slipped into these uh, shorthands in our, our living which obfuscate the processes of and enactments of our distinction-making. I remember in um, um, Mary Catherine Bateson's great book, and you, and you have a reading from Mary Catherine in your book, but in her, her great book, Our Own Metaphor, uh, there's discussion at the conference that she's chronicling in that book about uh, stamping out nouns, a movement to stamp out nouns for that exact reason, because they've obscured uh, that distinction-making process. And and you're obviously you know, drawing on work that goes all the way back through the second-order cybernetic tradition to George Spencer Brown and, uh, and obviously up through Maturana as well. So having, having foregrounded some of that, we're going to juggle the e-ball and engage, yeah? So what, what do you want to tell us about the, uh, the e-ball? Well, the e-ball is, is, is for engaging, and it's the, um, it's the ball one juggles whenever one engages with a situation, whenever one uh, pulls one head up, head up and says, here I am in this situation, how am I framing or thinking about the situation? And, of course, in much science praxis, um, this is not a question that's even asked because uh, the answer to that is that I'm engaged in discovering reality. So reality is a way of engaging with the world. Uh, but it's a, uh, it's a, has, in my view, a limited utility and as a way of obfuscating, again, responsibility. Uh, but again, it's a choice we can make. So the e-ball is really drawing attention to the agency we have in framing situations in which we're doing something, trying to understand, trying to act, trying to change situations, and also draw to the surface uh, some reflexivity about our own traditions of understanding out of which we're thinking and acting, because it's our traditions of understanding that will, in the moment, uh, lead us to frame things in particular ways. And so it's about how we step above that or yeah. out of that for the moment to think about alternative ways of doing it. And, of course, what the e-ball chapters uh, or chapter deals with in particular is the long history that systems and cybernetics scholars have of coining neologisms as ways of describing situations. And you can think of uh, Hassan Uzbekian and the people who led to the Club of Rome who talked about the global problematique. Uh, you can talk about Rittle and Weber's uh, framing of wicked and tame problems uh, or Russ Ackoff's uh, use of messes and difficulties, uh, Donald Schoen's use of uh, the high ground of technical rationality or the low ground of swampy real-life issues. So these were all... Um, framing choices that particular practitioners made in relation to situations they found themselves in. But a bit too often, these became reduced to a sort of engineering or scientific definition, as if these were categories of situation, which were described by these variables, rather than a set of descriptors of features of experience. 
or, or likely experience in these types of situations. And so we again have fallen into a uh, we fall into a trap whenever we use a, na- a topology and naively think that t- the topology is a description of some reality. Great. Um, and so now having made, uh, it seems like so much of this is about uh, making things conscious choices. So we've with the B-ball, we become aware of our own lineages in which we live and the lineages of languages, et cetera, in which we live. And now we are going to be, uh, from a second order perspective, be able to be more reflexively mindful of the types of framing uh, that we're going to do. And then that seems then to lead directly into the C-ball, which is uh, contextualizing. So how, do, how does that follow on then from, from the engagement? <laughs> Well, interestingly, it uh, has partly has its origins in what might one might call the political economy of systems academia. Um, when I first mm. arrived in the UK, I um, and became professor of systems. I, I joined a milieu in which there were um, departments of systems still in existence in other universities and uh, leading figures. Uh, who occupied chairs and other things in some of these universities, some of them in business schools, some of them in engineering schools, etc. But the whole field seemed to be fraught with um, conflict, uh, particularly conflict over the value or the uh, utility or the uh, under, underpinning theory of uh, one's methodology. Um, uh, as... Uh, Marcia Salner, an American systems educator theorist, once said uh, practitioners and their methodologies had all the elements of phallocentricity. Um, the, <laughs> I mean, I, I kept my own counsel, but it seemed to me that this was, um, this was uh, not uh, helping anyone very much. Uh, and I think looking back, on this history, it was uh, it was terribly tragic because uh, rather than uh, institutionalizing systems and cybernetic understandings in the in the university in the body politic and in uh, some form of professionalization, uh, people were fighting amongst themselves or disagreeing amongst themselves, uh, and uh, the end product was that almost all those departments and People uh, disappeared, so the, uh, they failed to institutionalize themselves effectively. So, to me, um, contextualizing is about putting one's uh, uh, systems thinking uh, in practice into a relevant uh, uh, context, a way of contextualizing it. Uh, it involves uh, the uh, appropriate theory informed uh, use of. Uh, method, tools, techniques, uh, but also an expansion of methodology. Uh, There was a big focus in the systems movement on methodology. Peter Checkland used to describe, you know, say soft systems methodology as the the logos of method. And at one level, that's okay. It's the logic one brings to the enactment of method. But I, uh, based on my Second, second order uh, understandings and focus on the practitioner felt that one could never claim in 
by merely writing about it that methodology had been enacted. To me, methodology was an embodied phenomenon that one reflected on or asked others to report on about whether uh, uh, what one claimed had been enacted. So to, to me, um, the sea ball is about how one contextualises one's performance to a particular type of situation. Uh, and, uh, the, of course, they, how one understands the situation is a product of the e-ball, uh, whether you choose to frame it as a wicked problem or, or, or not. And if you're not aware of the distinctions wicked and tame problems, then you, you uh, tend to fr- frame it naively or you just say this is a, a social reality and we don't take any responsibility for framing it even though we carry framings in our head. Um, so um, the, um, the work I've done uh, has has moved forward into and now informs the latest versions of our courses and we use uh, draw very heavily on there what we call the PFMS heuristic. The PFMS heuristic is the uh, practice, framework, uh, methods, situation heuristic. So it's a heuristic to invite would-be systems practitioners to think about how practices arises as a systemic dynamic and it was triggered, really, and is an elaboration of uh, um, Peter Checkland's uh, of SSM uh, sort of repute. Uh, uh, I think he called it his uh, uh, FMA model, framework, method, uh, area of application. Mm-hmm. And uh, I liked his work and his distinctions, but to me they didn't go uh, far enough and he never, ever, of course, brought the practitioner in. So he, he had the P missing. Uh, the F we've retained. Uh, the M is still very uh, much there. But uh, we, uh, I chose not to uh, continue the idea of an area of application because even that's uh, the framing uh, carries with it the idea that this is where mm-hmm. you apply a method uh, rather than uh, the idea that this is a situation in which you make framing choices about how to orchestrate or contextualise your system's performance. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it, it, some of this is building on the way Checklin's particular uh, differentiation of methodology and method, yes, that... Uh, so and, and that's not necessarily obvious to everyone. Do you want to say anything about methodology and method, just to sort of um, reflect on some of the things you've already put forward? Uh, I'm not quite sure what's behind your question, Tom, but I'll try and answer it. Um, well, the, I'm just thinking of Checklin speaking of methodology as being sort of almost uh, that a method is a you know a particular way. What well, you're talking yeah. about has the methodology been embodied? Right? Has it been instantiated, and and is it through a method that a methodology becomes instantiated or yeah. embodied? Well, in, at the same time, there was a whole discourse emerged around multi methodology. There were people. There was an argument emerged in the systems community that said, "Well, we shouldn't just stick to one methodology. A practitioner should be conversant with a set of different methods or methodologies and use multi methodologies." 
and in a way they were uh, the multi-methodology idea is a, a, a version of my sea ball of contextualizing one's performance. Mm-hmm. But again, it, um, it to me had too many limitations in that particular framing form because it was, it was sort of additive or summative, pick this, pick that, rather than uh, necessarily um, uh, linked to uh, the history of a practitioner doing what they do. And I, uh, I mean, that triggers a, mm. another reflection, which is perhaps a central question about the book, which hasn't come up in our discussion yet, which needs to be said. And it's, again, it's a Maturanan question. The book is partly a, a response to the question, what, is, what do we do when we do what we do? It's about building reflexivity around that question. And um, uh, I think uh, the, the privileging of metaphors or of, of framings that um, preserve or conserve the systematic at the expense of the systemic uh, is partly what I'm also trying to head off. Mm-hmm. Well, this would be a good point then to talk about those two words and how you distinguish between them, um, systematic and systemic. Well, if you're going to take responsibility for using language and living in language and you want to escape the nounness of system, then immediately your attention goes to the two adjectives that come from the word system. One is systemic and the other one is systematic. So... Uh, when we talk about systems thinking in practice in the open university tradition, we talk about being both systemic and systematic. Now, uh, in much of what I've written, I've argued that we live in a world that uh, privileges and values the systematic, i.e. thinking in linear cause and effect ways, uh, belief in magic bullets, uh, believe in uh, the value of one object over another or one position over another, etc. cetera, uh, and that this is, in a way, the dominant Western intellectual paradigm being systematic. Uh, and we have uh, under-invested in and ignored uh, being systemic. Systemic means re- being relational, being joined up, being connected, interconnected, um, Ironically, we live in a, a COVID world and a pandemic, which is thriving because of our systemic connectivity. Uh, so we have created a niche that favours mm-hmm. uh, um, the flourishing of a virus. But, that, but then again, that's how ecology and biology works. Uh, so um, we can't escape it. Hmm. But we need to understand the systemic and work with it. So we understand uh, there are two other concepts that are important to the book. One is the concept of dualism. A dualism is a self-negating pair, an either-or pair, subjective and objective is a classic um, uh, dualism. And in academia, when someone says you're not being objective, that's a denigration of your work. Um, Whereas uh, we argue the need to move away from dualism dualisms to dualities, and a duality is where two concepts come together to make a totality. So the concepts predator and prey, one concept makes no sense without the other. And so we argue that it makes sense to think of systemic and systematic 
praxis as constituting a duality. There are times when it, it's sensible to be systematic, but the overarching and overriding concern of our times is to become more systemic and to understand and act and uh, change things in systemic way. And I find it unique uh, in, in what you've written that you argue very much for um, holding on to the value of the uh, systematic, though. I, I, I've often seen um, the rejection of the systematic, and obviously because the systemic has been undervalued. But you argue that it is, it's really important not to lose part yeah. of that uh, Well, I think there duality. are moments yeah. when it's uh, it's it's quite good but we we have uh, we've so reduced our horizons that we've become focused on uh uh the systematic without recognizing that this is a special case of the systemic it's only in certain circumstances that the systematic works and operates and i have this insight in many ways from work in my uh, that i've done in my own research and scholarship on the governance of of rivers and water systems um, in which the uh, uh, there's a famous, uh, well, a, a well-known and well-cited paper in science in 2005 or eight uh, uh, called the uh, death of stationarity. In in the field of hydrology, uh, hydrologists have for a hundred years um, believed in the concept of stationarity and that there are a set of variables that you can use and derive from the past to predict the future. And what human-induced climate change uh, now makes absolutely clear is that uh, data from the past is no indicator of what it's likely to be in the future. And so uh, the death of stationarity, and stationarity is in essence the same as what I would call the systematic. Um, and so we, we must see that the, the systematic is only, uh, apply, only applies to very narrow and special circumstances, but even, but even uh, sometimes being mm-hmm. systemic requires and can benefit from being systematic about being systemic. Mm. <laughs> and I suppose about particular moments of causality or particular approaches yeah. to intervention, not losing sight of the systemic whole, but that um, there's a value to in these, like you say, these limited cases or these specific um, smaller sections yeah. of, of systemic well, phenomena. Sees yeah. all the, I mean, I don't want to necessarily get onto governance and COVID in this particular conversation, but one sees mm-hmm. it all the time uh, in the enactment of uh, contemporary life. Um, one example is, say, in Australia, when the, when the COVID pandemic first hit, People didn't really know what to do. The government, uh, we're a federation like Canada, <clears throat> and the premiers and the um, federal government created a national cabinet and they began working and contextualising their performance as a, as a governing system to the circumstances as they were unfolding. So they were juggling the sea ball in a particular way uh, and they weren't driven mm-hmm. by uh, their uh, uh previous history and prejudices. But uh, over time, that's broken down, and now the uh, National Cabinet is back to right. uh, projecting its own set of interests, uh, each each group's interests, onto the situation. So it's, uh, in, I mean, a way yeah. of understanding the sea ball is that you try 
no matter what the uh, circumstances are, to constantly push a square peg into a round hole. And uh, that's what happens with the ideology of uh, certain disciplines like economics. It's what happens with uh, certain ideologies in uh, uh, government or the sheer pursuit of political power at the expense of good governance and being open to circumstances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that uh, little uh, diversion into COVID is actually very apt for what we're talking about here. Um, great. So the M-ball. So the M-ball seems to be kind of a meta ball or it's a, it's a ball of its own, but it's kind of about the entire act in a certain way, is it not? That's right, yes. Well, I mean, any good juggler, any good entrepreneur or entertainer has to uh, manage their own performance, and that is not only their um, the actual doing of it. I mean, how you manage uh, uh, one could talk about the showmanship or the, uh, the the creativity of one's performance uh, or the effectiveness of one's performance. Does it realise what you want to do? Uh, uh, so measures of performance come in. Uh, and how you consciously think about um, uh, managing and how you move uh, to different uh, levels of abstraction uh, and, and I guess which underpin uh, what I mean by reflexivity. And I understand reflexivity as a second-order concept, so it's about reflection on reflection, such that you can begin to think about that question, what is what do we do when we do what we do? Um the, it's partly, it's partly, I guess, also to do with uh, an idea that I pick up in the final chapter, and that is how we move from our being to our doing. And so the doing is how you draw all the uh, four balls together in our our doing of uh, systems thinking and practice. Yeah, this is great. So let's why don't we go in in the few minutes we've got left to that notion of moving from being systemic to doing systems. What can you say more about that um, that that move? Well, in agriculture, um, there has been perhaps a focus historically on. Um, matters of epistemology, even though uh, it often doesn't get talked about in those terms. But what was interesting was, as a young academic when I joined Hawkesbury, uh, we uh, we were actively engaged in conversations about epistemology, the nature of knowledge and the natures of knowing. And um, this became institutionalised in agriculture through its focus on research and development. And there was a, a belief in that sort of systematic model or the linear model. Scientists produce research. Research uh, results are then transferred by specialist cadres of staff called extension officers or knowledge transfer people who extend them to users called farmers who then adopt these uh, results or these technologies and uh, in the idea or the romanticism of the model, live happily ever after because they're more productive and make more money and survive, etc. I mean, this was a this is a, a really spurious model, except perhaps for a very limited number of of, of cases. And it grows out of uh, North America and particularly the work of, uh, around the adoption of hybrid corn. Which of course has caused massive destruction of agri- of of landscapes and on and of diets and all sorts of other things. So the systemic consequences are, are huge. Mm. Um, 
So I became involved very early on and I've written other books about the uh, the poverty of uh, of the linear uh, model of uh, agricultural extension and rural development. And we have brought second order uh, ideas to how you might organise an alternative R&D uh, system. And this is perhaps a long lead into um, my own epistemological journey into um, uh, appreciating the duality of the now knowledge and the verb knowing and uh, arriving at the position to claim that all knowing is doing and it's only through doing that our knowing arises and the moments of reification of our knowing into what we call knowledge are only special cases of the unfolding of our knowing and doing. And uh, But we live in a world that privileges the idea that knowledge somehow uh, exists and is reified and exists independently of an observer or a knower. So I would claim that all knowledge needs to be brought into doing through acts of knowing. And this, uh, again, is a breakaway from the... Uh, the systematic linear model, which dominates much of uh, scientific discourse, etc. And for all these years, and all these years later, still dominates, uh, you know, the conceptions of education. Uh, it's moved somewhat, and there are teachers, and, and, and you find different pockets that are more interested in developing the knower than uh, than depositing knowledge. I mean, you go back to, I mean, not only Freire, but Freire, you know, trying to get us away from the banking knowledge of education, this idea that the, the learner is an empty bank account and the so-called expert deposits knowledge. I mean, that's a long time ago, decades ago that Freire wrote that and we're still it's still those paradigms, those those lineages of, uh, of understanding and framing are, are just so so deeply baked into our our Western approach that uh, it's it's still taking us a lot of effort to to dilute them or yeah, to well, move away from. Unfortunately, them. we were we made progress uh, in the seventies um, and eighties, and then it all got undone again by the rise of uh, the the web and, and computer and uh, hard AI, mm. which have completely uh, taken us uh, back into the dark ages mm. <laughs> in regard to these things. In my view. Well, that's that has opened up a whole new topic for and now. So let me ask you this: um, so we're going to bring you back uh, shortly uh, on this uh, podcast to talk about the new co-authored book with Ed Straw. Um, but you may not be working on this notion of what AI has done to us. But uh, is there a project you're working on now that you want to tell us about in our last few minutes, and then we'll see you a little bit down the road to talk about your new book? But in in closing, is there any, what you what do you uh, what are you working on now besides uh, surviving the COVID pandemic um, and, uh, and, and not driving yourself crazy in isolation? Well, as I said at the beginning, this book was, um, arose out of a particular set of circumstances that enabled me to, to write it and to bring it together for modules we were producing at the Open University. Uh, that, uh, mod- the specific module for which this is a set book uh, came about in 2010. And uh, I think 1,100 students have successfully studied that module since 2010, and the new rewrite of that module will begin in November this year, uh, and we'll have the second edition book as one of the set books for it. Uh, when we wrote it in 2010, we had a, a hard 
copy written uh, study guide, uh, whereas this time it will be all online through a virtual learning environment, a Moodle-inspired virtual learning environment. So one of my preoccupations over the last period of time has been taking a lot of these ideas and ideas that are in the book uh, into uh, animations and using the online uh, technologies to try and make them come alive a bit more for uh, students who... um, uh, who uh, sometimes struggle with these ideas, but uh, by and large uh, find them personally transforming as well. So uh, to me, this is one of the most, the contribution to this scholarship of, of, of learning through our modules at the Open University is, I would argue, even a more profound uh, achievement for me than, uh, than the books that I've produced. Um, the... Uh, if I have a project at the moment, I guess uh, to, to slightly change tack is um, we, as we imagine what post-COVID life or living is, although even the phrase post-COVID is a little disingenuous, uh, one of the conversations from my mind has to be that we have to be able to talk about our governance as if it were a system or in systemic terms. And at the because the system itself is failing in just about every place, uh, and what I'm finding extremely challenging at the moment is to have people capable of thinking of it as a system and ha- as having uh, of being a, worthy of a conversation in its own right, as opposed to a very limited conversation about this leader or that leader or doing this better or that better. And I think that's a great challenge for us all collectively from how we can step up a level of um, abstraction and understanding and realise that the institutions, the norms, the rules of the games we humans have invented for ourselves and which we've incorporated into our governance system are, in the face of covid really poverty-stricken, and what's more, we are living in a climate change world unfolding day by day and are totally inadequate for these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we need a change of a system rather than just a change in the system. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, Acoff talking about, you know, are we just going to learn to do the wrong things better and all that. This, this has been a kind of clarion call of systems for, for a long time. And I, and I, I really appreciate, appreciate the way that you breathe new life into it, uh, in this book and, and in your others. And I look forward to talking to you again soon, uh, about the new book. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you here, Ray, and, uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tom. Been a great delight. We've been talking to Ray Eisen about his book, Systems Practice, How to Act in a Climate Change World from Springer here on the New Books Network, a podcast channel. (laughs) I just blew the outro. Okay, let me make a note here. (laughs) We've been talking to Ray Eisen about his book, Systems Practice, How to Act in a Climate Change World here on New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks very much.